Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to another amazing day here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, your source for Kentucky politics from a constitutional and conservative viewpoint covering the stories, giving you the takes you're not going to catch anywhere else. Nobody's breaking it down like we do over here on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Thank you all for tuning in. It's a very exciting time. It is the budget year after all. It's a very exciting time. Every two years on the long legislative year, uh, this is a 60-day session year. Next year would be 30 and so on and so forth every other. And on the 60-day session year, they sit down and they make their budget for the next two years. And I want to go over what any conservative, what any true conservative would want to see from their government spending the kinds of things that supports our values. And what I'm talking about here is, is our dollars not being used to fund division, the exact thing our governor says, pretends to say he wants to stop as well. But let's take a second here to look and remind ourselves exactly what we're looking out for and how the government's taking our dollars by force. I mean, if you think it's not by force, try not paying your taxes, of course, and then they use that to fund division. First, we have DEI concepts. That stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it sounds really nice until you realize the, I the, I the ideas it's trying to push forward. I know it sounds cuddly. It sounds cute. It sounds like something you'd want to cuddle up next to, but it's not, okay? Because you see DEI, what it's attempting to do is to group people together based on immutable characteristics like gender and race. It also likes to throw in the LGBTQs for good measure. Then if you're an individual, well, it groups you into these categories and says, well, you know, that's why you're failing. For an example, we see in our schools all the time that they do studies showing that too many black kids are failing math more than white kids. So we must create a program only for black kids to help them with math. And what they're really saying is that these kids are failing math because of their color of their skin. Of course, that's racist and ridiculous. Black kids can do math just as well as white kids. And that's how you know DEI. Well, it's quite racist. You know, as Ayn Rand said, the smallest minority on earth is the individual. And she was right. Spe especially, you know, we start looking at something like learning. A black child isn't struggling with math because they're black. They're struggling with math because of individual issues that have nothing to do with their skin color. And worse yet, when they create these programs, you say, well, at least they're creating these programs for minority children. Perhaps it should help them out. Well, they spend more time worrying about understanding so-called the culture before they bother to dig in and actually teach these children math. And if you're a white kid, well, little, little Jimmy, you just gotta sit down and fail because, well, you were born with the wrong skin hue. And little Johnny, the black kid we're trying to help, well, you gotta sit down and wait because we're too busy learning about your culture to teach you what two plus two equals because, well, we've just decided that that's what we need to do. And this constant spending and, and constant division 
resulting in horrible results at schools can be never more clear than this recent study done by uh, John Guerin, Dr. John Guerin. He's been on the show before. Some of you may know him. He's an economist, a professor at Maritanus at UK. And what you see here on this graph, these are test scores. You see that's going pretty even. And this is funding adjusted for inflation. So we're spending massive amounts more. And yet, what do we see here? Oh, we're seeing barely achieving anything. So not only is this a complete waste of money, it's not even accomplishing anything at all. On top of that, DEI is also driving a division between parents and their kids. Remember here, the Kentucky Board of Education um, from KDE in 2022 gave the, <laughs> the actual uh, guidance to the question they were asked, is it ever appropriate? for a school to disclose sexual orientation or gender identity to a caregiver. So their essay should, if somebody's struggling with their sexuality, with their gender identity, should we tell the parents, well, what did they say in 2022? They're legally not allowed to say this anymore, by the way, but what they said here was whenever possible, schools should seek to avoid an involuntary disclosure whenever possible. And how this manifests itself, well, you may remember, of course, the Anderson County principal who ended up getting suspended for refusing to lie to parents and hide from them things they absolutely have a right to know. Also, we've got an Anderson County parent here recently suing a guidance counselor because that guidance counselor uh, facilitated a gay relationship between their daughter and another daughter behind their back and even went as far as to try to hook that daughter up with a lawyer to get emancipated because they were Christian conservative and because of her sexuality, she wanted to break free from the parents. Even the lawyer, though, ended up telling them, uh, we can't do anything about that. Can't do anything at all. Now, are you mad yet? I know I'm pretty upset. I'm upset that our dollars get spent on this. And exactly how does that manifest itself when it comes down to the budget? Well, in 2023, the Kentucky Council on the Arts spent $157,000 $141 funding LGBTQ choirs, LGBTQ acting groups, and even drag shows with children involved in them. Now, let me ask you, if our, I don't know, legislature grew a spine and decided to go ahead and... Your price is way too high, you need to cut it. Cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. That's right. If they decided to go ahead and cut it, do you think they would need to pass a law banning that our dollars being spent on that? Or do you think that the Kentucky Council on the Arts would manage to find a way to make sure they never fund this garbage with our dollars again? Unless you think it's, well, Andrew, that's the arts. They've always been a little bit more liberal. Let's keep in mind that the Kentucky state government as a whole spent $1.593 million in salaries on individuals with DEI in their titles. And that's at least, those are just the ones I was able to find. It's not as if there's an easy database here. And you know what they should do with that? Well, I think they should. Your price is way too high. You need to cut it. 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 That's right. They should cut it. That's right. At least you think, well, Andrew, I guess that's that's salaries, though. What else are we going to do? Well, let's look at economic development, spending $3 million 
and $15,000 funding programs to help only diverse individuals start a business in Kentucky. Absolutely ridiculous. And you know what they should do? If you don't know by now, let's make sure. Your price is way too high. You need to cut it. 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 Man, that song plays in my head. Every time it's budget season, I tell you what, them price is way too high. We need to covet, cut it, cut it down. So I think it's time that the legislature and trying to pass all these little laws, they go ahead and make one thing clear. We have the power of the purse strings. And if you're going to waste our tax dollars, it's going to get cut. Your budgets are getting cut. Then you, they will start to police themselves. And that's how we start getting real results. And then we might actually see that tax cut, because after all, uh, we want our money back. That's right. The legislature was supposed to pass a half percent income tax cut. They're supposed to be doing this every year. We hit the revenue marker according to their plan. But the problem is last year, they spent way too much money. And now, guess what we don't get? We don't get our half percentage cut. That would take effect next year. This year, you're getting a half percentage cut. Maybe you've noticed it yet on your paychecks. But next year, you're not going to be seeing the same thing unless they decide to go ahead and say, uh, our bad, we messed up. We should have never in the first place spent as much as we did. We got the revenue in, but we couldn't control ourselves. We couldn't stop spending your money. Our bad, our bad. Well, y'all, you're listening to the Andrew Cooperator Show. If you got questions or comments for the show, go ahead and reach out by emailing info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. we got some big things coming up. A school choice bill has been filed. We'll be going over that after this short break. We'll see you back here in just a few, few short minutes. And you are back with the Andrew Kuhwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. We have a school choice bill filed by Josh Calloway. That is House Bill 208. I do have a action alert, something that you can do today to make a difference in your community, because that's why you listen to the show. Look, there's tons of great things going on in the federal government. Lots of headlines coming out of that disaster of a Biden administration. I'm sure you hear about them all day long. I do too. But at the end of the day, though in 2024, you can cash your ballot, you can go out and donate to candidates, so on and so forth. There isn't really much you can do to affect the federal government and what they're going to do. But right here in Kentucky, you can make a huge difference. Keep in mind, these House members, they're elected by two, 3,000 people that vote in those primaries. And they are certainly afraid of a large amount of upset voters. And so I'm calling on you if you support school choice, and we'll go into some of the arguments for and against school choice. But if you support school choice, give a call to 502-564-8100. Once again, that's 502-564-8100 and ask your legislator to co-sponsor House Bill 208, the school choice amendment. Now, first off, here in Kentucky, the uh, Kentucky Supreme Court says that school choice is unconstitutional. So even if you have some reservations about school choice, you want to have a debate on it, you want to have a discussion, maybe you want a version of it, but not all of it completely. We can't even have that talk until a constitutional amendment such as this one passes. So we got to get this amendment passed. I mean, you want to, maybe, maybe you don't want full on private schools getting tax dollars, 
Well, you can at least look at charter schools, something that is authorized by your local public schools and gives you a choice to go ahead and go to them. Now, this is a great amendment, I personally think. I think school choice, I mean, obviously, I showed you earlier, John Guerin, their, their amount of spending compared to results is out of control and we have to do something. Objectively speaking, our current school system is failing. It is failing and it's time to try something different. A lot of states around us have something like school choice in place and it is time that Kentucky joins with them, if I do say myself. But what are some of the arguments perhaps against this amendment, against passing it, against school choice? Well, the first is, is that public funds should go only to public schools. Now, imagine for a second, we approached any other part of government this way. Imagine for just, just one second, we approach, I don't know, something like paving our roads this way or making roads or construction. Then that would mean every single person that ever paves a road or builds a road would have to be a government employee. But of course there's not. We use private companies, construction companies to build things for the state all the time. We use private companies to provide childcare. We use private companies for a litany of things we do. We use private companies to provide healthcare. We use private companies for a long list of things that receives public dollars. Literally, basically, government is almost just a contractor. They just sit there shelling out our dollars to different contracts and different uh, you know, private businesses. And then in turn, they handle and manage those contracts. That's most of what they do. And so when you look at, I mean, even take something like lost property, right? Our lost property system with the state treasurer, that's run by a private company. There is literally nothing else we run this way. This is just literally, this is a non-issue, a non-point. It is something that the public school, uh, you know, advocates have made up as a point, as a good catchy line that doesn't mean anything. And the minute you start to look at it at all, it doesn't even stand up to basic scrutiny. Here's the next one. It will take money away from common school fund or public school fund also known as the SEEK formula. Let's check out the amendment itself. It says sections 184 to 189 of this constitution shall not prevent nor require a further referendum for any provision of the educational costs of students outside of the system of common schools for parents of limited financial means as determined by law. So as long as no such funds are taken directly from the common school fund. This amendment, even if it passes, is prohibiting the gutting of the SEEK formula. Now, for those of you underwear, we have a common school fund called the SEEK formula. It, may, it takes away about half of our general fund, and then it's paid out to school districts on a per-pupil basis. But the amount into the fund stays the same. So if, for an example, right, if we do school choice in a bunch of let's say 20% of our students leave typical public schools and go to charter schools or private schools, let's say that that's the option. Well, you would say they're still receiving their SEEK dollars per pupil. Their amount per pupil isn't going to drop. And what ends up happening is, is when they go back and look at the SEEK formula and they look at the number of students compared to funding, well, the amount per pupil will end up just going up. And so the public schools will actually, unfortunately, in some cases, uh, keep their funding pretty much exactly the same. Uh, they'll just get a higher per pupil funding. So that addresses that. It's, it's literally prohibited by this amendment. It takes care of it. What's next here? We've got it's unconstitutional. Now, this 
Uh, clearly, it is you have to be constitutionally illiterate to think that proposing a constitutional amendment, voting on it, and allowing it, and then what happens is they pass it in the legislature, and then it goes forward onto a ballot referendum for us as a state to vote on. So you and I will get the choice to choose whether or not we want to have school choice in Kentucky. And people mainly Democrats, uh, for an example, in the KET forum that happened just the other day where House and Senate leadership, both Democrats and Republicans, were pulled on and asked some questions. Both the Democrats said that uh, uh, this amendment was unconstitutional. I'm not kidding. It, it, like I, The reason why I keep saying I'm not kidding and I'm acting so incredulous about this because it is literally the stupidest comment in the world. Yes, it's unconstitutional for school choice. That's why we have to pass the amendment in the first place. That's why it has to get done. And so it, it's a nonsensical, make no sense argument, but that's exactly what we can expect from them going ahead and gnashing their teeth. The schools aren't delivering. I mean, look at JCPs, JCPS, Louisville Public Schools. They spend over $20,000 a student. And yet they have the worst schools in the state. You go to JCPS schools and many public schools around the state, your child has a 50-50 shot of being competent in reading and writing. Less than a 50-50 shot. I believe in Louisville Public Schools, that's 40%. Only 40% of their students in fourth and eighth grades have reached proficiency level in reading and math. That is absolutely ridiculous. However, despite the complete and utter failure of the public school systems in Louisville, this hasn't stopped Mayor Greenberg from asking our legislature for $40 million spread over two years for universal pre-K in Louisville. First off, if it's so important to you, Mayor Greenberg, and you think it's so key, why don't you take that $40 million from your local schools? Instead, you have to turn around and ask our legislature to give you $40 million for Louisville to get a special program, something they're hoping, by the way, that they show success with will spread throughout the state. What they're really hoping is by requesting $40 million and getting universal pre-K, everybody else in the state will say, oh, what, what, why does Louisville get this $40 million for universal pre-K? Why aren't we getting that money? That's what they'll claim, of course. Uh, that That's the reasoning. They're not, quote unquote, dumb. I mean, they're dumb in the sense of they have ridiculous ideas such as this, but they're not dumb. They know exactly what the ramifications of this is. It's so weird to see Mayor Greenberg throw more kids into their public school system when they have failed to even be able to get them to school. Remember, JCPC, JCPCS had to delay the start of school by several days, almost a week. They started for two days and uh, were like, oh, never mind, we're going to have to quit. Or one day and then said, oh, never mind, we're going to have to quit this because they couldn't get kids to school. And then it took another month or two before they started providing busing to the pre-K kids that were already enrolled in some sort of program with their public schools. And in this, do they ask for any kind of solution to their transportation? Of course not. 40 million for universal pre-K, but we can't even get kids to school on time. Our bad. It's like throwing good money or, or good money after bad money. They've already shown that they're a failure. And until there is a radical, radical change up there, I'm sorry, but the JCPCS school system is not going to be able to accomplish universal pre-K. 
I mean, you're already failing. And then what will they claim? They'll claim, well, if we get them earlier, if we get them a year or two earlier, they'll be more prepared and better able to, uh, you know, learn in school. You know why kids aren't learning in school? Well, one, outside the massive amounts of money we already went over that they're spending on diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. They have a several DEI people on their payroll at JCPCS that are earning well over a hundred grand a year, well over a hundred grand a year. They could put that into reading or writing programs for kids, but of course that doesn't work for them. They've got to make sure they're fulfilling their DEI mandates that they feel are really important. I mean, they've continued to fail, but they keep spending this money. And that's the point. It's not that schools aren't properly funded. At 20K a kid, come on. It's at how they're spending their money and wasting it. If we go back to John Guerin's study, what he's seen is the administrative bloat has grown by 55% over the last 30 years. 55% more spending on those admin positions in our public school systems. See, nobody bothers to ask the question, why is it that these charter schools can provide better education in a lot of situations and provide successful kids that succeed more often while spending less than the public schools do? I mean, take a look. My son goes to private school. My tuition there is less than Fayette County Public Schools spends per student by a massive amount like six, seven grand less a student. And yet, their children perform a lot better. Maybe it's the school system that's broke. Well, coming up, we've seen some con laws filed by Representative Proctor. We'll be going over that after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew Cooper Ryder Show. And you are back with The Andrew Cooper Ryder Show, your source for Kentucky politics from a constitutional and conservative perspective. As always, you want to reach out to the show, just email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. So Representative Proxer has filed three certificate of need laws uh, that are co-sponsored by Representative Dones, Representative Rawlings, Representative Hodgson, Representative Tate, and Representative Massaroni, Kenny Massaroni. And for those of you unaware, certificate of need laws deal with our healthcare in the state of Kentucky. If you're a healthcare provider, before you can spend money expanding your business, whether that's building on a new wing, adding beds, even buying a new piece of equipment like an MRI machine, for an example, adding that to your current repertoire, not just replacing one with a newer one, but adding another one. Well, you have to ask for permission from the state. And what they go through is something called the certificate of need process. And they ask <laughs> your would-be competitors. So they ask the other providers in the area, is there a need for this? Is there enough demand uh, for this to be opened? Or is this just going to cause, uh, there's not enough people looking for, for an example, an MRI machine. There's not people looking for MRIs in the area. So, well, then uh, I guess you're not allowed to buy a new, another MRI machine. Absolutely hundred percent ridiculous. These are private organizations or they're supposed to be private healthcare entities. 
It's supposed to be a free market, our healthcare is, but yet this government control has done nothing but continue to raise our healthcare costs. Part of the reason, you know, people talk about how other countries, like European countries, they have government-run healthcare uh, that's all private pay from the government, and that makes them uh, better, and that America's healthcare costs are skyrocketing, and they are. But a lot of people fail to realize that our healthcare costs are only skyrocketing because we're taking away more and more of the free market attitude we should have to our healthcare system. So, Miss Proctor, Representative Proctor, has filed three bills to take a stab at this. Pretty bold move, if you ask me, because if you remember, we've covered this uh, a fair amount here on the show. There is a certificate of need task force that formed for the last year, had a hearing about once a month on different uh, certificate of need aspects, hearing from, of course, healthcare providers who wanted to keep it in place, and then a free market analyst telling them that uh, this is ridiculous and communistic. And what did that committee, that studying committee come back with? Well, of course, they wasted, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of our dollars to come back with the uh, suggestion that we go ahead and spend more money on continuing to investigate this. There's one sentence, and it said more study was needed. That was the gist of their one sentence. But Representative Proctor, she wasn't having this. So she went ahead and filed these three bills, taking a stab at some of the most egregious parts of certificate of need. House Bill 202, House Bill 203, and House Bill 204. So what would they do? Well, House Bill 202 would make them a minimum for capital expenditures at $10 million and medical equipment to $5 million. So remember, right now, if you want to do a capital expenditure, which means to you know add on to your current place, build a building, something like that, well, there's no minimum. If you just want to do it, period, and you're in healthcare, even if you're spending only $1 on it, you have to ask for permission from the government. Well, this would say, look, at $10 million. So if you're spending less than $10 million, you don't have to ask permission from the government to go ahead and expand your locations, build a location, or do work. It also would move the medical equipment request to $5 million. So remember, you have to ask permission from the state. So let's say you do MRIs as a business, and uh, you have more people wanting MRIs coming in to fill out than you have MRI machines. Well, right now, if you want to add on, so you want to go from maybe two or three to four, well, you have to ask permission from the state. And then they turn around and ask your would-be competition, who apparently is failing at, at servicing the area because you have more customers and say, hey, is there a need? And if they say, no, there's not a need, you can't add on your MRI machine, even though you've got a line of customers out the door. And so this would go ahead and move a minimum, put a minimum in place of $5 million. So unless you're buying equipment that costs more than $5 million, you can go ahead and purchase without asking for permission from the government. That should be a no-brainer. That should be an easy thing for everybody to support. That should be something that, I mean, literally asking your legislator, why is it that a private healthcare entity can't spend a dime now without asking the government for permission? Is 10 million unreasonable minimum? I'd love for them to explain how 10 million is an unreasonable minimum. Medical equipment, or even just the medical equipment portion. Why is it? If you're in the area already and you're operating and you determine you need another piece of medical equipment, why do you have to ask permission at all. It's a private entity or supposed to be, remember. You also have House Bill 203. 
So this basically says that mental health, drug treatments, home health, and birthing centers, as well as kidney dialysis centers, uh, won't need to put in place a con request, a certificate of need request in order to open up and operate for business. This should be a no-brainer too as well. We hear time after time after time after time after time, our legislators, our governor, proclaiming that we need more mental health treatment, we need more drug treatment. They say it all the time. Mental health is the biggest problem we have, and we need to get more services in place. But yet, despite the fact that they claim they want more, these entities have to jump through hoops in order to be allowed to open and operate. So we're, we're literally a state where we're saying we don't have enough mental health providers. And, 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 and granted, I think it is uh, our mental health issues are more about going to church than it is about, you know, mental health providers per se. I mean, supposedly one in three individuals are struggling with some sort of mental health illness. And, and at some point, if one in three people are struggling with it, maybe one, you're trying to medicalize the human condition, perhaps. Two, perhaps these issues are stemming from a lack of Judeo-Christian values in our society. But even putting that to the side, you're sitting here saying we don't have enough mental health providers. And yet you continue to keep in place these giant hoops that or small hoops they have to jump through, hoop after hoop after hoop after hoop in order to operate and open in the state. If we're low on something, if we don't have enough of these and we're claiming we need more, take away the red tape. You know, so often we see our government giving out sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, like to a hospital. In the West End, they gave away big millions of dollars to get a hospital built in the West End of Louisville. Supposedly, it was a healthcare desert. I don't know what that means. You're in Louisville. You can drive 10, 20 minutes to a hospital or ride the bus or call 911 if you're having an emergency. But anyways, they say it was a healthcare desert in Louisville. And so they gave away millions of your dollars to this hospital. Meanwhile, they keep in place. And they continue to give away all these big incentive packages for things like mental health. They talk about how they need to up their payouts for mental health and drug treatments in order to get more people in. But yet, they don't do the simple step that would cost us nothing and encourage a free market by cutting the red tape. And then finally, House Bill 204. House Bill 204 would allow the person requesting the certificate of need to be done and to have a public hearing. Right now, these hearings, of course, are private, decided on privately. But this gives an opportunity for the people of that community to speak out saying, no, 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 no. That provider in the area may be claiming that they can handle it, but they can't. I mean, how many stories from people saying they couldn't get treatment would it take in order for these boards to go ahead and, you know, allow something to come in place. It, it's, it's honestly, it's flabbergasting that this already isn't a part of the process, that they don't ask the public for permission. It is the government sitting there saying, we have central planning and we can handle all of this. We can handle all of it. You don't need to worry about it. We got it. We're smarter than you. Yeah, your experience may be you don't have proper healthcare coverages and you'd like more competition, but don't worry. Daddy government knows what's right for you and you're going to listen to them. And that's what we have right now in Kentucky. So House Bill 202, House Bill 203, and House Bill 204 are certainly bills that I would suggest you contact your legislator and tell them to support or co-sponsor if they haven't yet, and tell them this is the kind of thing we need. We need a free market in our healthcare, and this is a big first step in that 
direction. Well, coming up, Schickel has filed a bill on election. Senator Schickel has. We'll be digging into that after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. And you're back with The Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Senator Schickel has filed Senate Bill 61 to end the, in my opinion, unconstitutional, early in-person, no-excuse, absentee voting. Wow, what a mouthful that is. Why is it such a mouthful? Well, maybe you've taken advantage of it, and if you have, I, there's no shame in that. You wanted to vote early, so you did. It's something offered. But whether you like it or not, it is, in fact, unconstitutional. Our Constitution is very clear. Voting in person is supposed to take place on one day. The only thing allowed outside of that would be absentee voting. But yet, to get around the Constitution, they decided to do away in 2020 with any kind of rules regarding voting on one day and invented a term called early, no-excuse, in-person, absentee voting in order to end around the Constitution, which is something that already, even if you are somebody who supports it, you have to objectionably say that this should have been done the right way. It should have been proposed in a constitutional amendment and then ratified as a referendum from the citizens of Kentucky, and then it would have been a constitutional move. But that's not what happened. They invented a term, and that's very annoying to me, when our legislators and elected officials these ones with an R after their name decide to wipe their butts with the Constitution and say, I can invent a new word and term in order to get around the intent and meaning, and it's ridiculous. However, putting that rant to the side, Schickel has filed Senate Bill 61 in order to end that early, excuse, early no excuse in-person absentee voting and move voting back to one day. Now, personally, depends on how you feel about this. Some people love this. Some people, obviously, they hate this. It, it causes different issues, of course, for the uh, poll workers and for the local county clerks. Do they like it? Do they not? We've also seen them shifting to these voting centers, too, recently. Instead of going to a set place, they allow you to vote all over the county, which has led to a litany of issues. I can think of Jesmond County where they ran out of the wrong ballot in 2022 and started handing out ballots that had uh, the city council races for uh, Nicholasville to people who don't live in Nicholasville. So they lived out in the county and they're voting on city council for Nicholasville, not knowing who any of these people are. Handing out the wrong ballots. And I mean, let's be honest here, the average person, anytime you have a place where they've piled up all these massive different ballot variations, I mean, think about the different ballot variations, okay? So you go down and you have obviously uh, uh, house reps that can vary uh, even within the same city, same county, you can have different house reps, right? So for an example, in Jesmond County, you have four different house reps. Um, you have one state senator, four different house reps. So, so already that's four ballot variations. And then within each of those four, some of them live in the county. Some of them live in the city. So obviously that would now be a two ballot variations per four. So now that's eight. Some of them live in Wilmore and not in the county in two of the districts. So now that's a, another two added on to that. So that becomes 10. You see where I'm going. Then you have the county magistrates, of course. Those are uh, uh, district-based. There's several 
of those within the county. And then, so that creates now a different ballot variation for many of those. You end up with around 30 or so different ballot variations. When you go into Lexington, it is literally, I, I believe I saw a number where it's several hundred different ballot variations because you have city council, you've got the um, county fiscal court, which is called the, I think, county commission now. It doesn't do much, but those are broken up into three districts. You've got all the different house reps, all the different state senators. Some of them share several districts with different house reps. And so you have these massive amount of ballot variations and they end up at the same voting place. I mean, it's just asking for trouble. I'm telling you, these voting centers are asking for trouble because the average voter doesn't know what's supposed to be on their ballot. I mean, how many of y'all listening to this actually request your sample ballot before you go into the voting box? Some do. I know some of you do, but many don't. You don't even know what you're supposed to be getting. How are you to know that you got the wrong ballot? So that's uh, that's a few different issues there. But so Schickel puts forward this bill and Adams is hopping mad. So let's see uh, what Adams had to say here. Um, he had some different opinions. So he said in one, um, he said it helped us save the 2020 election in Kentucky. While other states had huge problems, we had a very smooth election with the highest turnout we've ever had because we gave people more than one day to vote. First off, 2020 was a COVID year. That was just uh, four years ago, for those of you who don't uh, know. 2020, four years ago. And then ever since then, four years ago, our voting process has radically changed. But somehow changing them back a short four years later to Adams is absolutely ridiculous. He can't handle it. And then on top of that, he, he asserts the highest turnout we've ever had. Let me ask you a question. First off, when it comes to turnout in 2020, that's a presidential election year, hotly contested. It was the highest turnout for everyone. So claiming that you're early, no excuse, in-person voting contribute to that is one thing, but also from an objective standpoint, let's just, let's just say it. I know everybody talks about, uh, voter participation and it's faux pas to say that like, you don't want everybody to vote. Right. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, is we don't want people voting who have no idea what's going on. It's very high turnout to me. That isn't necessarily something to celebrate. I know when people look at primaries, they say, we need higher turnout. And, and maybe you do. And they say, look at generals. We need higher turnout. People got to get out to vote. Higher turnout. What Do you want them voting if they have no idea what's going on? If you have to push them to vote, if you have to offer them four days to vote, what do you think the chances are that these are the types of people that are going online, bothering to research who they're voting for? What do you think that chances are? I'll give you a hint. Zero. It's zero. And let me, let me do a little mental task with you right now. For those of you that live in a city, who'd you vote for for city council two years ago? Do you remember? Do you know their name? Who'd you vote for for county magistrate two years ago? What's their name? Do you know? Some of you may be sitting there saying, I don't know. Who's your constable? Do you remember who you voted for? Hmm. That's right. I'm challenging you a little bit, aren't I? It's, it's something that really sometimes makes you think, unless you're incredibly politically involved, you most likely have no clue who any of those people are. And so you're pretty well informed. You're listening to the Andrew Cooperwriter show. How many people do you want showing up that literally don't even watch the news? You think 40%, 50%, 
50% of Kentuckians are watching the local news about local elections. Sure, they may be seeing the ads and everything else for these presidential elections, and they may be getting the ads on their congressional races, maybe even their local races, but do we want people really voting who the most amount of information they have on who they're voting for, they're getting from 30-second ads and pieces of mail that are coming to the mailbox? Is that something we really want to encourage? I don't think so. I know it makes me a pariah. It makes me saying something different that probably nobody's, you probably haven't really heard people say before. But I certainly think it's a um, mistake to really push heavy, heavy turnout. And obviously, as an individual candidate, you want more of your voters to turn out than the other guy. But I just think as a general practice in a society, encouraging everybody to vote maybe isn't the best thing. I know. I know some of you are clutching your pearls. That's okay. We'll get through it together. But that's not all Adams had to say. No, this, he took it to a next level. So this is what he had to say. He said, number one, it'd be horrible for our citizens. But number two, it would be a huge black eye to Kentucky before the rest of the country. You've seen boycotts and stuff, let's say Georgia, for tightening their election rules. All they did was get rid of some weeks of early voting they had. If we go from having just four days to vote to just one day to vote, we'll be the subject of national boycotts. It'll be embarrassing in front of the rest of the country. They'll call us bigots. They'll call us vote suppressors. So I have some, some words for you, Adams. If we go from just four days to vote to one day to vote, remember when it was just one day to vote just four years ago? And second, whenever should we be making policy? When is we Kentuckians should be deciding our laws and policies based upon whether or not it will embarrass us to the other states. California does things all the time that I find incredibly embarrassing. They're not asking our opinion on it. They just gave health care to every single legal immigrant living in their state at the taxpayer offense. expense. I find that ridiculous. Since when do we care if the other states like our voting practices or not? That's absolutely ridiculous. It'll be embarrassing in front of the rest of the country. Who would it be embarrassing to, Michael Adams? You, when you go to your little conference with the other secretaries of state? What do you guys do? Sit around and talk about how many early days of voting you have? And you're like, well, I've got four. I've got three. Ah, I've got one more than you. Is that what's embarrassing? They'll call us bigots. Adam, stop caring about whether or not people call you bigots. They name call all the time. You're never going to please these people. And then finally, they'll call us vote suppressors. Look, they already call us vote suppressors. Last election, 2020 three or two, two, I think it was. No, it was 2022. It was 2022. I was listening to NPR, not something I commonly do, but I happened to cross as I was tuning the dial and I came across NPR and they had a call in person say that they were being voter suppressed because there were people with American flags all over their truck in the parking lot. Come on. Adam, stop caring what everybody else thinks of Kentucky. Start caring what Kentuckians think of Kentucky. Well, y'all, that's what we got time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Thank you all for joining me. We'll be back here tomorrow, Friday, for one more show of the week. Until then, we'll be seeing you.